0: hi and welcome to a podcast from hope springs church coventry for more please find us on facebook at hope springs church or on twitter we're at hope springs cop thank you and enjoy okay we'll make a start i'll start in prayer and then we'll get going Heavenly Father, thank you that you are present with us. Thank you that this whole season of Advent speaks to your being with us. That you are always with us, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you are closer than the air we breathe. Thank you that you are for us, that you are to us, that you are with us, that you are through us, that you are in us. Heavenly Father, so by your Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that Christ would be born anew in our hearts that you would uh, reveal more of yourself to us, that as we uh, come together this first Sunday of Advent, that we would anticipate, but that we'd also know the Word of God blossoming inside of us, giving us hope, shedding light, bringing good news, bringing glory to you, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 So today we're carrying on the Home for Christmas series. Um, Last week I spoke about what home is and how Jesus Christ is that home. That home isn't some uh, post-mortem heavenly mansion with a gold-plated hot tub. That that it is Jesus Christ, that, that it's all about being with him. That it's not location, that it's not just our relationships, that it's not just the context that we find ourselves in. But that it's actually just being in Christ that we find home. And I actually, like, really, really enjoyed it. That's probably one of the favourite things I've ever, ever shared. Um, and so I'm going to carry on. And because it's Advent, because we're doing our Christmas thing, we're going to look at how Jesus becomes home to Mary and Joseph, um, which, is, which is quite a... When I was kind of preparing for this week, I found that concept quite weird because, like, Jesus is at home in Mary. How is Jesus home for them? And so it's actually really interesting to try and tease this out. So the first week of Advent, the first candle is lit. And um, so I just want to pause before I even start to say anything else. And just let us just take a moment. Let's just take a pause and just anticipate that heavenly light, the light of the world dawning upon us. So in all of our darkness, whatever that darkness may be, I think I heard um, Steve kind of speaking from Moses about how uh, God makes a way and that there's all sorts of darkness. It could be darkness within us. It could be our own frailty, failure, whatever it is, or it could be things that are imposed upon us, the shadow cast upon our lives by whatever else is going on in our lives that we experience, that we anticipate. Obviously, It barely needs saying that we know there is a lot of darkness. But Advent is the illumination of the world. It's the illumination of our hearts. So let's just take two seconds just to name the darkness that we we face inside of ourselves for other people. And just anticipate Advent is all about the arrival, the Adventus of the Christ, the light of the world. So just pause and be illuminated by that light. Thank you Jesus that you are Emmanuel that you are light of the world that nothing will stop you arising and shining upon us So for all the darkness that we can name and that we might not be able to name yet say illuminate us in Jesus name Amen So I want to talk about Mary and Joseph and it's really interesting actually I don't know if you've ever tried to piece together the story of Jesus' birth but it's scattered across Matthew and Luke so our traditional um, nativity is basically these two stories that actually don't mesh together incredibly well Um, but what we're not doing we don't turn to the Bible for a history lesson we turn to the Bible to know about God We're never never using this as a reference book to prop up the history that we learn at school. We're looking to this book to teach us more about God, to reveal more about Jesus. And that's not to sidestep, well, is it historical or not? Is it factual or not? That's not the questions we're asking of the Bible. So I do want to talk to you about history, though. Because it's really, really important to understand what's going on. So Jesus Christ, historians, legitimate historians, not necessarily Christians, they agree that if he was born... He was born around 4 BC. So, so the monks got it wrong when they set the calendar. Jesus Christ was born four years before Christ. <laughs> <coughs> and at this time, this man, Publius Quintilius Varus, was the governor of Syria. That means that over the nation of Israel and just to the north where Syria is, he was the Roman consul. He was the general that was in charge. Now this man, Varus, he became famous... A few years later, um, he famously lost four legions in the Teutoburg Forest fighting the Germanic tribes, and he fell on his sword in shame. But at the time of 4 BC, he was the governor of Syria. Now, the governor of Syria was the person that was in charge of Israel. Around 4 BC, Herod the Great died. So when we read the Bible and we read Herod, 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 all the way through until the book of Acts... That's not Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy that dies around Jesus' birth. Herod's sons, Antipater, Archelaus, all of these Herods are the Herods that we read through the life of Jesus, the ones that behead John the Baptist, the ones that are curious about the message of Jesus. But Herod the Great, he died around 4 BC. Now when Herod the Great died, and we're going to talk a bit more about Herod in a minute, when Herod died, there was an uprising in Israel. There was a rebellion that was brewing. Israel has always been one of those nations that was just very prickly, that was always a bit like, well, they weren't they? They're a bit unstable. And so what happened is they had an uprising against the Roman Empire. Now Varus was particularly known for his brutality and the high taxes that he levied on Syria, on Israel. And so the nation of Israel rebelled against the Roman occupation, essentially. And Varus... (coughs) being who virus is, he put down this rebellion in particular brutal fashion. In 4 BC, in the nation of Israel, he crucified 2,000 rebels. He lined them up on the highways throughout Israel to let them know what would happen if they rebelled against Roman power. So what was happening around the time of Jesus' birth? What was the atmosphere In the country where Mary and Joseph were looking to be married, to be betrothed and have this baby boy, Jesus. 2,000 men were on their highways, crucified, dying in agony as a show of Roman power. Can you imagine the feeling within the nation of Israel at that time? The sense of instability, the sense of viciousness, of brutality, of being overshadowed by a world power. The sense of insecurity, of dislocation, of dis-ease, of disconnection to the plans of God. General Virus could call upon four legions to come and put down a rebellion in Israel just like that and crucify 2,000 people with very little resistance. Can you imagine the demonstration of power and the Israelites sat there thinking, where is our God? When will our God come and overthrow the powers of Rome? This man has just marched into our nation and crucified 2,000 people. And when we talk about him crucifying 2,000 rebels, We're talking about 2,000 people that looked to Isaiah, to the book of Jeremiah, to the book of Ezekiel, and said, this must be the time when God is coming. And they were snuffed out, just like that. Can you imagine the terror of it? Now, I believe that Jesus actually took on board the cultural happenings of when he was born. He heard the stories from his parents as he was growing up about the time that 2,000 people were crucified. And he says later on in the, the small apocalypse, the little apocalypse, how dreadful will it be in those days? The coming apocalypse that Jesus predicts in Matthew 24... How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers? How does he know that when upheaval occurs, when tragedy occurs on a national scale, how does he know? Because he spoke to his mum about it and she said it was awful in those days for pregnant mothers and nursing mothers. Jesus absorbed what was going on in his nation. He wasn't just some superpower that just arrived like Iron Man in his suit. Jesus was part and parcel of history, of an occurrence in history. He knew about virus... He knew about 2,000 rebels being crucified by the governor of Syria. Can you imagine what that felt like? How unhomelike Israel felt when a foreign power could just march in and do that? How dislocated. And we talked about Jesus being home last week. Can you imagine the sense in the nation? It doesn't take as much to imagine it, actually, if we just look to the news today. Can you imagine what it's like being a pregnant woman or a nursing mother in Gaza? Can you imagine what it would be like being a pregnant woman or a nursing mother in eastern Ukraine? It doesn't take much for us to actually step back into history and recognise the carnage and the instability and the dislocation and the sense of, God, where are you? We can think of like some of the hymns, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And ransom Israel, right? We know that waiting, that sense. So when Jesus was born, he was born into this. 2,000 people crucified on the highways and byways of Israel. That upheaval, that sense of being not at home. Being homesick. Then we come to Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great, again, a man of history, he fought on the side of Antony and Cleopatra. He was actually in his youth a brilliant general. But when finally Octavian, soon to become Caesar Augustus, conquered Antony and Cleopatra (coughs) and they committed their suicide pact, Herod, realising that he was on the losing side, did not say, oh I was never on their side really. Instead, he went and confronted Caesar Augustus. And said, do not consider whose friend I was, but consider how great a friend I was. To show the mettle of the man, Herod the Great, in his youth, a brilliant general. He did not disavow his allegiance with Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Figures we know from history. This all happened in history. But he proclaimed to Augustus, look how loyal and good I was for them. And Caesar Augustus recognised the courage and the mettle of this man and said, okay, why don't you go and be a client king for us and oversee this area of Israel. <clears throat> Herod the Great was an amazing man. He was the one that rebuilt the temple to the disagreement Of the local Jews. But his um, architectural feats are amazing. The wonders of the world. Caesarea Maritania, a city built on the sea, on the coast, to make Israel a world power of the Mediterranean. The temple itself. The disciples later on marvel, look how big the stones are. How amazing is this temple to which Jesus says, Within three days, this place will be torn down. It was magnificent what Herod the Great did. He was not called Herod the Great in sarcasm. He was called Herod the Great because he was a truly great man. Disagreeable, but truly great. He was racially an Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek and politically Roman. He was a complicated man. As he got older, he became increasingly paranoid... Historians speculate that he might have had syphilis and was going a bit mad because of it. He had 10 wives through various times of his life. Anytime one of his sons by any one of those wives showed any pretense of rising up against him, being a contender, being a rival, he killed them. As he became more and more paranoid in his old age. And the thing about when a leader becomes unstable it radiates out it says this in Matthew 2-3 when Herod heard this the birth of Jesus from the Magi he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem was disturbed along with him Okay, and it doesn't take as much to imagine that either do you remember when Donald Trump was president can you imagine what it was like living or working in Washington D.C an unpredictable man in charge of things and within his pres- presidency we had riots we had the storming of the Capitol building something that is unheard of but the instability of the man begat instability in the nation police brutality riots, race riots all sorts of people and this was what jesus was born into more particularly though the instability of herod was focused upon the holy family they were picked out for particular persecution because of who (coughs) jesus was herald to be now when we when we read about herod persecuting the holy family especially in the book of Matthew the slaughter of the innocents that is written to evoke Pharaoh Pharaoh killing the Hebrew babies because Matthew is written to say that Jesus is the new Moses so the birth story of Jesus echoes the birth story of Moses loads of children were slaughtered But Jesus made it through, but Moses made it through by the power of God. And it also evokes Nebuchadnezzar, talking about Herod became even more incensed. He was already incensed, he was already in a rage, and he got even more full of rage. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down to him. And he had the furnace stoked even hotter in his rage, in his insane rage. He had the furnace stoked even hotter that it killed his own men. That was his insanity, that was his rage, that was the instability of the man. So not only was Jesus born in a time of sheer brutality by a foreign power that was occupying the nation of Israel, who would crucify 2,000 people on the highways and byways. This visible, visceral, vicious sign of overwhelming dominance. He was also born into a time of national insecurity. Can you imagine how dislocated Mary and Joseph felt within their nation. The instability that was in the geopolitical region, the instability that was in their very nation, focused upon them. They were chosen for persecution by Herod. They were chased into Egypt. And then scandal. This was a really curious one to to really read about. But Mary and Joseph... Not only the geopolitical climate, the national climate focused upon them, but for them personally, scandal. Wedding customs in the Middle East. You were betrothed to someone or engaged, as we'd probably call it now, for a year before marriage and consummation. Mary was found to be pregnant. She was found to be pregnant. Probably how this works is that Joseph and Mary were organised to be married. Joseph was probably um, not as young as Mary. She was probably a fairly young girl by our standards these days. They probably lived apart. She was living in her family house. He was taking on his family business. They could have been in two different regions. They could have been in two different towns. This is how the birth of Jesus as Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. You know what that means? She wasn't anywhere near Joseph. She was showing. Can you imagine the scandal that would follow her? You're engaged. How are you pregnant? It's not like she could hide it. She was found. How did Joseph hear about it? That girl you were engaged with? she's already pregnant mate scandal in the society at that time she was found, she was seen she was noticed showing (coughs) but after he had considered this can you imagine it was the Holy Spirit yeah yeah right when it says he had considered this the word for considered internally enraged this is a very very moderate translation the other uses of the same same word if you go and do Bible study and whatever go look at what the word is for considered it's the root word for being angry he didn't sit there and ponder it I'm feeling very spiritual today <laughs> Holy Spirit hey eh? He was angry. He was embarrassed. He was ashamed. Joseph was feeling cuckolded. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Can you imagine the scandal that followed them for all the days of our life? All the days of their lives. So when Jesus preaches in the temple, his opening sermon, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. Wait a minute. Aren't you Joseph's son? They're not recognising him. Oh, you're a hometown lad. Good on you. Pardon my French, but they're calling him. You're that bastard, aren't you? Mm. This scandal followed them all the days of their lives. So not only was Jesus born under governor virus, who crucified 2,000 people in a magnificent show of brutality that Romans could do whatever they wanted in the nation of Israel, in spite of Yahweh. Not only was he born under the persecution that was focused directly at him by an unstable, increasingly insane leader, he was born into scandal. And to compound this, there was the census. You are literally disempowered. Rome wants to know how many people are in this nation for tax purposes. Right, everybody has to get up and go. Go be registered. You are being forced to go back to your hometowns and be registered. Have you got any choice in the matter? If you decided to dissent, well, a few years back, there's that little issue of 2,000 people being crucified. Are you going to dissent? I don't think so. In those days, Caesar Augustus, remember? Octavian, who beat Mark Antony, who heard the great was a great pal of. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place, while Quirinius who was actually the successor to Varus as the governor of Syria. And everybody went to their towns to register. Can you imagine the sense of homesickness that pervaded the nation of Israel? God, where are you? They were waiting. Advent is all about the awaiting, the arrival of the Christ. They were definitely feeling Advent vibes in the nation of Israel. When... Will God deliver us? That was what Jesus was born into. That was what Mary and Joseph were feeling, were experiencing at the time of the birth of Jesus and his childhood. We have rosy notions and romantic and sentimental notions about the nativity. Because 2,000 years removed, we can kind of gloss it a little bit. And even our edgy TV series that try and make it a little bit more realistic just aren't edgy enough. We need to imagine life in Gaza, in Yemen, in eastern Ukraine. Life on the edge of society where we are despised, where we are disempowered, where we are disenfranchised. Our imaginations probably can't even get there in this warm building with our kind of middle class wealth but we do know storms and we do know darkness can you imagine for mary and joseph the sense of homesickness the dislocation the disempowerment the alienation the disease that we're feeling all around the birth of jesus and this translated to jesus how woe to mothers nursing mothers pregnant women in those times how bad will it be jesus knew because he spoke to his mum and dad about how bad it was for them and he knew something worse was coming. So, to bring it into one day, I love this picture, by the way. This is just off the coast of Dorset. This is a rock stack. And that is a man who decided in the middle of a storm to climb that rock stack and stand in the middle of the waves. A bit mental. <laughs> but we know what it is to be in the midst of a storm, we all have our personal <laughs> storms. We don't have um, to compare. But we all know darkness. We all know what it is to stand in the midst of the storm. They are facing threat, persecution, uncertainty, scandal, dislocation, disempowerment, dis-ease in themselves. We all know these things, these darknesses. But Jesus is born into these situations. And he is the light of the world. He is the Prince of Peace. Yes, Advent is all about us recognising that we are awaiting a saviour. But it's also about recognising that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is not afraid of these storms. It is in these storms that he is born into, to bring peace. He didn't wait for a perfect time to say, hey, I'm the Prince of Peace. Look how peaceful everything is. He stepped into the middle of such chaos, such a sense of dislocation to create peace. He makes peace. He makes it to happen because he is the Prince of Peace. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. There will be no end. So this is the bit where Luke needs to wave his top around. (laughs) He's got the wave, the great wave. So we are obviously facing... The Mills family we're facing our own storm our own darkness at the moment and one of the words that I felt God give me was that I am stood in the midst of the storm but I am fastened to the rock peace is not that there is no storm peace is not that I can get into the eye of the hurricane where there's a pseudo sense of peace peace is that I'm anchored to the one thing that is not going to move Uh, The storm is going to batter me and I'm going to look it straight in the teeth and it's going to hurt, but I'm not going to move. Not because of my own amazing faith, not because of my own strength or capacity to withstand storms. It's because I'm just tied to something that ain't going to move. And Steve pointed out to me that, you know, the more the storm batters you, the more it pushes you to be conformed by the rock that you're fastened to. If you can kind of imagine that in your head, that if you just keep being pushed and pushed and all you're doing is like clinging to a rock, you become more conformed to the rock. This is one of my favourite pictures ever. This is a really famous painting by a Japanese artist called Hokusai. This is called Under the Great Wave of Kanagawa, and it's part of a series of 36 paintings of Mount Fuji. And you can see Mount Fuji stood in the distance. And this is famous for all sorts of reasons. His use of Berlin blue, which is a very rich blue, and it's a beautiful colour. But I don't know if you can see. But in the picture, there's boats of monks, Buddhist monks, paddling in this wave. And the wave, the actual crests of the wave, look like claws or fingers seeking to drown them. Literally the embodiment of evil, trying to crush and grab and take hold of and pull down these people. The only steady thing in the whole of the picture is Mount Fuji, the rock, which is the centre of the picture. This picture reminds me, because I find it quite dynamic in terms of the fingers, the way the wave is rolling. Mount Fuji stands. Mount Fuji is immovable to the waves. Obviously it's a sense of perspective Mount Mount Fuji's in the distance. I just love the fact that at the centre of the picture is this immovable rock. This picture was something that I fell in love with around the time of when Sarah, when we were pregnant with Sarah because water was the thing that was going to kill her. And so when I look at this, I see... The death grip of water. Not being able to hold on. Because the rock was immovable. And so Mary and Joseph are in their storm. We are in our storms. Whatever we construe those to be. And we're not trying to have one of those contests where my storm is better than your storm. My darkness is darker than your darkness. It's not a zero-sum game. We all suffer. When one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers with it. And it's not a zero-sum game about suffering either, because when one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice with it. So even in the midst of our darkness and in our storm, we can still rejoice with others and suffer with others. Because it's not a zero-sum game. Our Jesus is bigger than all of that. So how did Mary and Joseph navigate everything that they were in, their storm? How did Jesus become home for them? Now, I love this. (laughs) How did Mary and Joseph find home in Jesus? They encountered the Word. They encountered the Word of God. Or the Word of God, shall we better say, encountered them. Now, that sounds rosy, but they were actually in a position to hear and receive and do something with it. They had occasions to encounter the Word. And so as a church, we've been moving through this whole Rule of Life series about creating these encounters. we just finished the Rule of Life series about the Bible, and we decided that the whole point of the Bible wasn't so that we could rack up points on the Bible app for reading daily, but that it was actually to engage with and encounter Jesus. Jesus is the Word. This is the Word about the Word. The sermon is a word about the word about the word. Everything we do is to encounter, to put ourselves in a position to encounter that word. So how do Mary and Joseph navigate the storm? What is the word for us today? Cling to the word of God like that rock in the midst of the storm. Mary and Joseph... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Moses. You notice how Matthew just switches up the same sentence a couple of times. But essentially, I love Joseph. (laughs) Even in the midst of all the turmoil he was going through, he's always asleep. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. And then a little bit later on, Luke decides to name her Mary. Her name was Mary. They had encounters with the word. But it wasn't just that they encountered the word. We can pick up this Bible at any point and read it, encounter it, listen to it, listen to a sermon, whatever it is. Listen to worship songs that are particularly full of scripture. It's to do with it, to do something with it, to cling to it, to act, to obey And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother. Joseph did exactly what the word of God told him to do. And Mary said, "May it be done to me according to your word. She clung to that word. She filled her life with it. She meditated upon it. It says later on she kind of paused and thought about all these things that were said to her about who this Jesus would be. How did they navigate the storms that were in their life? They didn't say these storms don't matter. Oh, the governor of Syria, he'll pass. He'll move on. Oh, Herod's dead. Cool. They'll forget tomorrow, you know. There'll be something else in the news other than Mary being pregnant before we were even married. They didn't. They didn't weather the storm because they were so amazing. They weathered the storm because they clung to the thing that was clinging to them. The Word of God. And, uh, we're going to need Matt in a minute. <laughs> Jesus invites us home. In the midst of whatever turmoil, in the midst of whatever we feel has pulled the rug from under our feet, that's a surprise that has made us feel vulnerable, that's made us feel dislocated, disconnected, diseased in our bodies, alienated, disempowered, all of those things that make us feel homesick, where we get that existential sense that something isn't right and there's something more out there. We cling to the word of God and Jesus invites us home and the only thing that kept coming to me was the words of Cornerstone. When darkness seems to hide his face, being in Israel at the time of 4 B.C., When the Roman powers could literally just walk in and crucify 2,000 people, that is darkness that seems to hide the face of God. I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. There's still a firm foundation. No matter how tossed by the winds of fate or circumstance that we feel, Jesus is the one that holds us fast. So I'm going to finish there and I'm going to invite the worship team, if Matt can extract himself, um, to just come and play Cornerstone just for us to meditate, reflect on, give ourselves back to Jesus. So Heavenly Father, thank you uh, (coughs) that you interrupt our lives that you erupt in our lives that you encounter us through your word and i pray father that you would help us cling to your word in the midst of all the storms that we face that we would cling to your goodness in hope and faith and know that you are love and that you love us and that you hold us in jesus name amen Amen.